welcome to TA1. Everything you want to know about adventure racing and then some, including some uh, bike packing. I did a bike stuff and um, an interesting chat I had with my friend uh, Joe Stiller where we went. Uh, we went like old guys talking about the old days. Anyway, uh, very interesting, I think. Um, pretty pretty cool to uh, be able to talk to all these different, fun, unusual, and I say that with in the best way, um, people that I know. Um, I probably try to tell everybody thank you all the time, but thanks, everybody, for when you come on. And uh, remember, the more you talk, the less I do, and the better people like it. So going to keep this short because we had another long episode and I'm going to get this up and you know it's like 40 degrees at 8 o'clock at night so time to take uh, little miss chili dog out give her a, get a little hike we did have some good ones over the weekend and uh, you know she just likes being out and so do I so that's it that's enough go fast take chances and thanks for listening Hello, Randy. Hey. Well, I don't know why Skype wouldn't let me uh, call your number. Uh, maybe I've been banned from Skype. Yeah. It says invalid number. So, My cell phone? Yeah. The th- oh. Well, is that the 336 number? Yeah. Yeah. We uh, got rid of our landline a couple of years ago. Yeah. So that's, I don't know what that is. It, it's, I don't know. Well, doesn't matter. You sound you sound good here anyway. <laughs> you always sound good. Oh well, you know what I say. I have a face for podcasting. <laughs> yeah, and I have uh, I have that same face. That's why most of the pictures you see um, are of other people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and why people say that, oh, he's never smiling. And when I do smile, they make a big deal out about it. But anybody who rides with me sees me smile all the time. Yeah, I get uh, – I'm not a smiler. Well, my smile is very subtle. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when Paulette sees a picture of me actually smiling, she freaks out about it a little bit. Like, you really can of course, she says I don't know how to talk either. She says, how can you do it on a podcast? Yeah. And it's like, well, because I don't have to look at anybody. I just listen. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, enough of the chit-chat. Who are you? I am Joe Stiller from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And why is that a big deal? <laughs> it's not a big deal. <laughs> so uh, some people... Uh, uh, I think hold us higher than what we really deserve. So we just like to ride, and um, we get tired. I've ridden almost every road there is in the state of South Dakota, and and over the last few years we've ventured into Alaska, Arizona, and this Christmas uh, the Baja of Mexico. So so you're somebody. So let's no. um, um. When when did you first get on a bike, and why? Um. Me and Tina have, and sorry to go backwards you go this back, far, but you can go all the way back to your third birthday, no, no later okay. than that. 
Well, that's exactly where it starts. Um, me and Tina have been together since eighth grade, so that puts us um, together for uh, just over 40 years. And that's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, I, I think <laughs> or, or condolences to, to Tina. <laughs> you know she's not a quitter, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we've been together for a very long time. And when we were kids, we um, I used to have a motorcycle. I taught her how to drive motorcycle. And I was a poor kid, and she was a rich kid. And so I lived out in the country, and I used to bike. And this is kind of funny because... You know, uh, everyone who knows me knows I love to ride the roads less traveled. Well, that's how our relationship started. I lived 14 miles out of the town that we lived in. Mm -hmm. And so I would ride 14 miles on gravel and paved roads, mostly gravel, to her house. And I remember the first time I rode there, it was a, it was a headwind, and I worked all summer to save up for this bike. It was a scarlet red Schwinn Traveler. I corny tasseled, I picked rocks, I did everything to buy that bike in my school clothes. And um, I would, it took me three hours once to ride to her house. <laughs> and uh, when I got there, and this is one of the first times her parents met me. And uh, when I got there, she uh, poured me a glass of lemonade and we went out and sat in the front porch if you can imagine an old farm place mm -hmm. with the front screened-in porch, and we're sitting on the couch, and uh, it actually had a pass-through window from the dining room. And I bet we weren't sitting there 10 minutes when um, her mom peeked her head in and caught me holding Tina's hand. <laughs> so, oh, you naughty, naughty boy. She asked me very politely to hit the road. And soon as she did... Um, I, you know, got up very scared and sheepish and uh, headed out for the door, and Tina just busted out in tears. Well, uh, I didn't get to the end of their driveway, and uh, there was Dad with the pickup, and Tina's, ear, her tears were all dried up, and they were giving me a ride home. Now, now think about this from a dad standpoint. Wouldn't this be a great opportunity to see where this kid comes from? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think mm -hmm. there was more motivated than just giving, not feeling sorry for me and giving me a ride home, but he could not believe that, that I rode as far as I did to see his daughter, which should have been cause for more concern, don't you think? Well, I was going to say it showed <laughs> a certain conviction. Yeah. So honestly, I can I, remember riding 10 mile-ish. In Rapid to uh, a girl's house long, long, long time ago and thinking it was a big deal. So, yeah, I, th I think it shows a certain amount of commitment. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I made a commitment to her two weeks after uh, we started dating. And uh, when she walked out of the bathroom reading that letter with her girlfriends like girls do, um, she tore the letter up and threw it in the trash. But uh, you know what? We're still together. <laughs> so... This year was our 31st wedding anniversary. We did not realize that. We thought it was our 30th, and uh, so we relived our 30th wedding anniversary this year. Well, you know, you can be you can be 30 years old for like 20 times. So can you, can you yeah. have your 30th anniversary for 20 times? So, but it, we can, yeah, yeah. So, but you glossed over something very important in that story. Yes. For the uninitiated, what is corn detasseling? 
Ah, so um, I tell you what, there's not too many people that will hire you when you're 12. But uh, a farmer, if he sees a good, hardworking kid, um, he'll hire you. And the, the, this is a great opportunity to make some extra change and to find out what slave labor is all about. Um, we, he, the farmers, we'd either meet at their ranch or their farm place, or they would pick us up at a central location, and we would go out no matter what the weather was like, almost from sun up to sundown, and we would walk rows of corn and pull the heads of the tassels off for sea corn. And so every so many rows, there might have been maybe 5, 10, 15 rows, and then they would leave two or three uh, with the tassels on, and it would help the corn to cross-pollinate, and it's, it was kind of like um, creating their own species or modifying species of corn, and it was all done by pollen. Yeah. And um, and to to the best of my knowledge, that's what that's what the the goal is in corn detasseling is to uh, kind of create a, a hybrid corn of a certain species to have a certain characteristic. But at the age of 12 years old, you really don't care about that. You care about and they don't pay it until the end of the summer. And so um, they get you coming back day after day. And I remember. Walking And so it's kind of funny because this all relates to gravel cycling and the passion that people have for gravel cycling and the horror stories that they tell about it, you know, riding on B roads in the, in the mud. Well, I did that in cornfields. It would be raining out cats and dogs, and he has to get these tassels off the corn, so we're out there working. We're out there walking through knee-deep mud. We can't even wear our shoes anymore um, and just trying to reach up and grab the tassels. And I've never been a tall kid. And if you did a bad job, they would publicly humiliate you by uh, when everyone got to the end of the rows, the the foreman would throw uh, all the tassels you missed at, at your feet, and that was um, kind of put things in perspective for you. Yeah, definitely a uh, rite of passage. I fortunately, yeah. I would do it like for an afternoon now and again because I, uh. I would spend summers in eastern South Dakota, so... You know, I'd have friends that were doing it, and so I would. I got to do it enough to know what it is like bailing. I just, I, I can do it. I know what it's like, but I didn't have to do it all summer. So, kind of yeah. the best of both worlds. Get the experience. That's how I got my school clothes and I bought my car and everything I ever had. So yeah, that's but. a. What do they do now? And I guess I never. I never looked at it as a as you know this really sucks. I just looked at it as the means to accomplish the goal, and and that same characteristics come comes through today in how we ride and where we go, and we're never afraid. I mean, every time I publicly announce what we're going to do, whether it be riding across Alaska and you know and the temperatures are 60 below zero or are going down to Mexico when the cartels uh, are fighting to be in control, um, we always hear this ridicule. Even Copapelli Trail uh, going there in June, and we knew the days were going to be consecutive 100, 103, 106, 109 degrees, but we get that back home in our backyard. I mean, take a ride in the Badlands in July. Yeah. Right? Take a ride in What's eastern that? South Dakota in July. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't have to go to the Badlands. I can remember doing no. rides on the 4th of July in out of Sioux Falls where it's like, you know, can I, I got to make it another 10 miles to, to fill up with water because – Yeah. And, and so um, – Exactly. So, you know, this, this 
writing thing didn't come from corn detasseling. Where did the writing the Baja Alaska the where did the where did it come to do these weird things? And I use weird well, in, you know, in the good sense. Well, when me and Tina got married, we bought our bikes with uh, our wedding money. And the first ride we did was the Minnesota Ironman, and we bought mountain bikes. And so nobody would do that Minnesota Ironman <laughs> on a mountain bike. Yep. But if you know anything about the Minnesota Ironman, it's always snowy and rainy. So it is actually the perfect bike to do that yeah. <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. Um, and so we started cycling at just, you know, we got married in our probably our early 20s. We dated for 11 years, and then she finally broke, and uh, she took the vows with me. And uh, and you know who married us? Uh, Terry Redland's brother in yeah. Mankato, Minnesota. Terry Redland, the yeah. artist? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. his brother married us in Mankato, Minnesota. So that's cool. Uh, yeah, it is kind of cool. Um, so we started cycling, and um, uh, we kept turning up the notches. We started doing uh, a track racing. I was... Uh, one of the officials at the velodrome in Minnesota. I put on the Olympic Festival there in 1989 and sponsored an athlete uh, for the Olympics. Me and Tina did. Hmm. And uh, so cycling quickly became a part of our lives and our passion. So even if we weren't racing, we were involved in some facet of it. Um, and then we had a son. Yeah. And the son that we gave birth to happened to be an indoor kid. And we tried. You know, we... Tina has pictures of me hiking up the backside of Pikes Peak in the snow with Riley in a in a backpack and and uh, uh, riding around in Are you still there? I'm still here. Yeah, you went away for okay. a second. He's riding in the backpack on Pikes Peak. Yeah, he's he's uh, sitting in a kid's backpack as we're climbing up the backside of Pikes Peak, and there's snow all over the place, and uh, taking bike trips to Grand Marais, and we put him in a burley, uh, probably much younger than he should be in a burley, um, with a helmet and a towel wrapped around his head, and his and every it tried to do everything right, but um, he really did not have a passion for the outdoors, and so we started changing our lives to fit his. Well, Riley left us at the age of 14 to pursue a career in music. I, I don't know if you knew my son. My son at the age of 14 became a professional cellist and yeah. left for the New England Conservatory. And um, he's 24 now, and he's been pretty much gone ever since. But he's played all over the world. Um, he personally knows Yo-Yo Ma and a lot of other famous people. And so his reality and was... Um, was changed at a very early age. Well, we had a hard time dealing with him being gone in our lives, and so we turned back to cycling. Uh, just doing like uh, riding with the local club here in Sioux Falls. They have a club called Fab Falls Area Bike Club, and uh, they're an awesome group of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have weekly rides. And then we started looking for rides outside, you know, the Okoboji campus ride and and we just kept ranching out looking forward until one day we find ourselves in Colorado doing the triple bypass and and that wasn't hard enough and so then we started doing the Leadville race series and we went back year after year to do the Silver Rush 50 and and the 100 the LT 100 race and um, and then we go out there early in June if there wasn't snow on some of the passes and we try to train out there so um that's where Tina got pulmonary edema. Uh, she won an entry one year for the LT100, yeah. 
it's a famous picture that sits on the floor in our living room um, of me pushing her bike up Columbine, and her skin was gray, and she was drooling uncontrollably um, and coughing up lung tissue. Uh, and so kind of, you know, you were making the, you know, you know, how did this Baja divide and all this stuff here? Well, we have such a passion for cycling and looking what's over the next mountain, what's over the next hill. Yeah. Um, but now Tina has to watch herself uh, at high altitudes. She even has to take an inhaler to go to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we try to look for adventures um, that we can do that altitude isn't we try to stay below 8,000 feet and we've been able to she's been able to manage well at that um, 6,000 even in the Black Hills at 5,000 feet on on our race trans South Dakota uh, she starts struggling in the 5,000 uh, foot range huh. and so that's why the Baja for Christmas we did Lake Superior in August right after our race the trans South Dakota and we started the big ride off this year was uh, in June, and that was on the Copapelli Trail, all self-supported. Our bikes weighed about uh, probably 47 pounds each with all the water and three days worth of food that we carried up and down the the mountain ranges following the Colorado River. Yeah. So, okay, we got got lots to talk about now. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, I'm kind of curious, when did... When did you guys move to Sioux Falls? Uh, we bought a business. So have you ever heard of Pepperidge Farm Goldfish and Pepperidge Farm uh, Milano Cookies? Yep. And so I have never been to Sioux Falls in my entire life. Um, we just thought we were uh, city slickers, and actually we lived in Blaine area right next to the velodrome. Yeah. Um, but uh, we thought we were big metropolitan people, but I didn't like who I was working for. And we were just looking for a change, and I had this opportunity. I was in sales for a food company up there, and um, I was looking for a change. And her father was having problems with an employee down here. He had just bought this region. Pepperidge Farm is a franchise, Mm -hmm. and so it's owned by somebody. Um, And then they have the distribution rights for that product line in a certain region, Mm -hmm. territory, or whatever. And so her father used to be one of the largest distributors uh, in the whole U.S. probably. I mean, he had all the way from Minnetonka all the way down into Nebraska and far ends of, you know, Iowa. And so it was just a monstrous territory. And uh, and I've always had the same worth work ethics as I have in my riding ethics. Yeah. I think that's where they came from. And so uh, after getting frustrated with who I was working for and getting my sales cut every two years and my income following it, I says, well, I'll come down and you guarantee me a salary and then let, give me the opportunity to buy you out. And so that all happened. And uh, we went from making $84,000 a year up in Minneapolis to our combined income here in Sioux Falls almost 25 years ago. Um, our combined income was 36 <laughs> so you gotta want it bad right yeah yeah so but we did that for quite a few years and then we wound up selling out and i just sold out the last part of my franchise i was the largest pepperidge farm distributor in the whole central region united states and i sold out the i split sioux falls in three segments i sold the corporate pepperidge farm and two young guys and i still am a consultant for one of the young guys he hires me whenever i will give him time um (laughs) usually if i'm in sioux falls i might help him out a couple times a week i make sales calls for him um uh, help deliver product whatever he needs so 
So, and, yeah. Uh, so yeah. yeah, well, my, my question is, were we there at the same time? Because we lived there 90 to 2000. We would, if we didn't live here at the same time together, it would have been we would have been just missing each other like two ships. Yeah, and it it makes sense because I'm like, the guy doesn't sound familiar, but it it was funny. I mean, it's it's kind of funny to say because I was a track guy too, and I was I was a pursuiter. So okay, yeah, that's what I raced. <laughs> so I raced. I didn't do. I was kind of getting out of it when when. The track in, in Blaine opened up. So, um, like, when we moved from Sioux Falls back out here, I had seven track bikes to sell. Wow. <laughs> so. Did you know Mark Zay? Mark Zay. I, I rem- up in Minneapolis? I remember the name, but I don't. Okay, he was a famous bike builder, and he built my track bike out of Columbus Aero Tubing. Huh. And when I got my set, there was only four Columbus Aero tubing sets left. Now, here's some history for you, right? Four tube sets left in the world. They were originally built for the Olympic cycling team, Mm -hmm. and they made a few extras. You know who bought the fifth one? I give up. Greg LeMans. Do you remember that famous time trial picture where he's riding on a Botticia with a small wheel up front and a Columbus Aero tube bike? Well, they didn't make their bikes out of Columbus Aero tubing. No, he had um, his his guy um, who built all his bikes. I'm not sure who built his yeah. bikes back then. Yeah. So. No. Yeah. But I knew Greg, and we had Greg. So I was uh, involved with the velodrome before it was even built. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry Hineker was one of the probably one of the founding fathers of pushing that through. Um, legislation up there in Minnesota. Um, there was a lot of proponents against it, and it kind of worked against it from the beginning because people wanted people who weren't for it wanted it to fail. Yeah, and it's it's always kind of been a thorn up there. I wish they would do like what uh, Colorado did and put a dome over it. I think they could sell memberships. I know guys like me would pay a lot of money to go ride the velodrome in the winter time. Yeah, it was. It's kind of a <laughs> Whoever thought track racing would come up on an adventure racing podcast, but it's a pretty cool, cool uh, sport. You know, yes, if, it is. If, if you live within like five hours of a track. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And to the best of my knowledge, they still have open track on Thursday nights up there, and they have bikes available hmm. and instruction. I think it's they try to make it user-friendly, though yeah. I have not been back in the velodrome. In fact, I used to be one of the maintenance guys in the beginning because I'm a cabinet maker's son, and I grew up building furniture. And very few people could work on – I believe the track was made up, and I could have this wrong, but I thought it was Pamela Sapili, which is a, a family of the mahogany, mm-hmm. um, which if you ever fell on that, Randy, um, the slivers were barbed from both sides. Did you ever fall on that tra- track? No, I never – I. I'm happy to admit, and I don't even have to knock wood because it's not going to happen now. I never crashed on the track. <laughs> yeah, so when you slide down this, if you crash in a bank and you slide down it, the slivers go right through. I mean, it's like rug burn, and they go right into your skin, but they're barbed both ways. And so you can only cut them out. 
or wait for them to faster and then and then squeeze them out. You know, well, I think you have to be a little bit morbid to be a, a, a self-professed cyclist anyway. Sometimes, and you do your you do things you probably shouldn't. But um, I know that I have pushed many of mine out yeah. instead of going in and having them lanced. Well, so as, I, think as I a still constru- have a pretty good scar on my hip. Yeah, as a construction guy. I've had lots of slivers. You just you just got to wait, you know. Yep. And it's like, yeah, it really hurts, but it's but it's not pussy enough to come out yet. So <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> what a turn for this conversation, right? Well, you know what? Let's let's go here. How old school are you? Because <laughs> I like to I like to play this game. Like, all right, did you? I would guess you rode in woolen shorts. Yes, I did. Yes. With a leather chamois. Oh, that, that was, is correct. Yes. Um, did you ever nail your cleats on? No. No. Ah, yes. I wore for me. <laughs> toe clips. I wore toe clips the, uh, right up until probably Look became famous with their red and was it their red and white pedals? No. That the, was the, the first set of. The originals were just the white ones. So. Okay. Yeah, because I had my first pair of CDs. You literally, they were wooden sold, and you had to nail the cleats on. So, see how old I am? You are. You win. I had my first shoes for my track bike were Victoria's. Mm -hmm. Did I say that right? Yep. And they were an all mesh, and uh, I think they were mesh and kangaroo leather. And, okay, did you ever have a pair of Chinelli death pedals? Um, no. Oh, I, I did once. You talking the double straps? No, no, no. These were ones that they literally had a lever to lock you in. They were, they were like a clip in, but you had to reach down and flip a lever. (laughs) It just sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, the real bad idea. But you know, it's even with, cause out here in the hills, I, you know, I, I was young and stupid, had money. So I had like, I had the first, uh. I had the first pair of look pedals. I had the first Trek 2000 when that came out. The 2000, that's aluminum. Yep. That was glued the, frame. Yeah. That also they engineered it wrong. And I snapped three three frames on the, uh, the chain stay, drive side chain stay, because well, all the uh, stress went to there. Do you know that I had the first Trek 8000, which was the mountain bike version of that, yeah. with all glued and lugged frame, and the exact same thing happened to me, and they replaced it. Yeah. But the same thing, and that's when they were being made in Wisconsin. Yep, yep. And then I had the first mountain bike in the Black Hills. I had a stump jumper. <laughs> in, in Where did you buy it from? Uh, Black Hills Bicycles when uh, Jan and Julie had it. And I took it home on a Saturday morning, and it was blizzarding, and of course went for a ride and showed up down there, and they were just aghast at what I had done to my brand new bike. <laughs> I was like, rode it in the snow. Yeah, it's like, isn't this what they're supposed to be for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, oh, I love talking yeah. to old people. So you know that this Baja trip that we were on, I rode with Jeffy Jeff. Jeffrey Bradner, 
who is an Iditarod guy. And mm-hmm. so it's me and Jeffrey had kind of crossed paths in a lot of different, I mean, Leadville, we've done a lot of the same races and we've seen each other and, and just, and it turned out we both showed up at the Baja. But the neat thing is about Jeffrey is people who know me know that I've done the Iditarod a couple of times. But Jeffrey is one of the first guys to do it on a mountain bike. And he did it the one year where they were pushing in, in waist-deep snow uh, on regular mountain bikes. And they had mandatory checkpoint, or they had a mandatory sleepover back in the early days of the Iditarod Invitational. And I think they called it Iditasport back then. Yeah. So. And that was in the days, correct, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but... There were no, there was no gear list, but you, but you had to sleep in, you had to sleep outside at one time with what you t- took with you. Yes, so you could go and they light. Had a mandatory. So when yeah. you got to Flathorn Lake, yeah. you had a mandatory uh, uh, layover there. Everybody did. Mm-hmm. And so yes, and to this day, Randy, and that's why they call it the I did a rod Invitational. They do not have a mandatory gear list. They mm-hmm. figure that that's why they call it. You have to be invited to yeah. go to it for one thing, and have had to have proven yourself worthy to go because uh, they don't want anybody dying. But um, they figure by the time you get to that level of uh, you know, winter ultra endurance that um, you know what you need and you know what it's going to take and um, and yeah. you just get it done. Yeah, well, I think, honestly, that's the way it should be with all racing. But, you know, sometimes you get yeah. to people that are like, oh, no, 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 this this um, Mylar bivy bag is fine for sleeping out in yeah. zero degrees weather. Uh, no, um, a lot of the winter ultras <laughs> in the lower 48s um, have, and I think they're starting to crack down on this. And you know what? I'm guilty. I, I'm guilty on this list of trying to get past something on the gear list mm-hmm. with not knowing how it works and if it will work. And I've seen a lot of people do exactly what you said. They have a negative 40 sleeping bag, and they go out and buy this cheap SOL. And they're great. Don't get me wrong. But uh, the cheap SOL, and they're a summertime um, emergency bivy. Yeah. And if they ever would unwrap that thing and put their negative 40 bag in it, they'd find out that their negative 40 bag is really only a zero-rated bag because it can't loft out. Um, yeah. And they have to work hard to stuff their bag inside this little tiny uh, plastic uh, bag. Yeah. It, but uh, – yeah. Well, I know that uh, Tascobia now will not allow those, and I, I heard that this year. And I would suspect Arrowhead, because they're usually subjected to temperatures in the 40s. Uh, negative 40 is n- not uncommon there. I've seen it myself, but um, I think they're going to turn the screws a little bit more on the racers. It's funny, every year I see somebody show up with a brand-new cook stove in a box. and but Yeah, you know. and they're like, well, <laughs> I'm not going to need it, so why should I... Why should I learn how to yeah. use it? Well, because yeah. you might need it. <laughs> yep. Or what? Here's the thing, and this is this is the thing that I think that a lot of people miss the point in these kind of events is when you sign up or toe the line to go to a winter ultra race or any kind of an endurance race, um, you should always, in the back of your mind, know that um, that you're capable of finishing it. Not just that. If I can't do this, I can pull the plug. You should never step up to the start line, and I'm saying this deliberately, unless you know 
that you can finish it. And I know things happen, but you don't ever want to become, especially in a winter ultra, you don't ever want to become a liability for somebody else in the race. Because if another racer has to help save you and they're only carrying enough supplies for themselves, you not only endangered yourself for being poorly prepared, but you've also endangered the person who is uh, willing to assist you in any way. And that, that's the thing that always scares me in the Iditarod because every year, and all, us veterans, and you, all the veterans can tell you this, is somebody always seems to get slipped through the cracks. and. And we wind up taking care of them, and and they go, oh, they feel good because they made it to McGrath or or wherever the the final checkpoint is for them. But um, they wouldn't have got there if we wouldn't have been giving up our supplies to get them to that point. Yeah. And uh, and sometimes, like last year, that becomes quite dangerous because you know if you follow the race last year, I mean, we had temperatures down to 60 below, and guys were going through the river. And um, uh, was it? 70% of the racers were out by mile 150. Um, it was no joke. And these were experienced racers. These are very competent people who know what was doing, and and still things happen. So, yeah. Well, it's it's Alaska in winter, people. <laughs> it is. And last year was not no, – no, see, this is what people go, oh, it was such a horrible winter there last year. No, the last four winters were extremely mild. Last winter was just a normal winter. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> people don't, don't – if get you it. don't follow it. Yeah. yeah. So um, excluding Alaska because that's, that's kind of a horse – that's kind of its own thing. But yeah. something like Arrowhead or something – who I don't want to say cheats, but who pushes the boundaries more? The fast guys that want to win or the new people? Um, I would say the fast guys that are new. Okay. That, yeah. Okay. The yeah. new people, the people are just coming in who want to finish it. They want to get by buying the cheapest gear they can. And so they will go and somehow find a negative 20 bag that only cost 125 bucks. I don't even know where they would make such a thing, but it weighs probably 10, 12 pounds. But they find these um, because they they know that they're not going to use it. Well, um, I knew that I wasn't going to use my negative 40 sleeping bag my rookie year, but um, I was one of the few that survived that year, and I did bivvy. I did have to bivvy down in that negative 40 bag. And I learned a lot about a negative 40 bag that year. Um, the, the temperature that bags are rated for, that's not a comfort range. That's a survival range. And so as the sun came up and it got down to negative 40, there was nothing comfortable about where I was. Yeah. And I was very fearful, me and the guy and the, the other two guys with me, we thought we were going to lose our fingers that morning trying to stuff our bags back in our Relevate large size bar rolls because that's all we had back then. After that race, I got up. I hooked up with Bike Bag Dude out of Australia, and uh, Caden has built a new bag designed for Arrowhead, and he even builds a bigger bag with some cute key features that I, I want to see in these bags for Alaska. So you can easily pull out and stuff, restuff your negative 40 or negative 60, being it be in Alaska bag back into your front bar roll and I actually carry in my bar roll uh, war temperatures like that I carry a, a negative 40 bag a jacket made for climbing Mount Everest and a pair of mittens to suit 
Um, but the fast guys, like you were asking, they will go with the minimal uh, gear checklist, and they can. And so this is this is kind of a dangerous thing for someone new coming in and looking at the racers. They're looking at amazing guys. And I want to say that probably one of the only fast guys are one of one of the most known, this is how I want to say it, the most well-known fast guy uh, in the industry. Um, he doesn't cut any corners. He knows exactly what each pieces of his gear will do, and that's Jay Peterberry I'm talking about. Mm. And I've seen guys step up to the plate with not even a third of the experience that he has um, come with the very bare minimum of gear. They bring the, Mil- the Mylar SOL bivy. They're using an Isbit fold-up stove, and they have just barely what they need to make the gear checklist, yeah. and they show up. And it can work for them if the temperatures uh, will allow it. Yeah. And if it doesn't, then guys like Jay Peterbury always shine because he's not only fast, he knows how to deal with the temperatures. The year it got down to negative 40, we're all wearing all kinds of weird gear and jackets and stuff that we think. Jay shows up, and I don't know, he was wearing a wool sweater. And I don't know what he had underneath that wool sweater, but I remember seeing all of us really bundled up to what we feel is going to be, we start at 27 below, what we think is going to work for that event. Mm-hmm. Jay's just wearing uh, a couple of uh, wool ear warmers over his nose and his chin and uh, a wool shirt, but he clearly has something underneath of it, and he didn't stop till he hit the finish line. Oh. And he, but, so, but I've seen guys faster come with very little gear and beat him, but the temperatures were so mild that they didn't have to... The experience didn't have to come out. Yeah. Well, they're gambling that yes that they're not going to die. Yes. So, um, is it a little um, what's the word I want? Not daunting, but is it a little bit? Does it make you think a little bit like when you're doing Alaska to think? Well, I am doing a race that people could die at. Or did you just are you like you know people that do really dangerous things and you don't think of that? I don't think of that at all. Okay. I never, you know, I'm not wired. So here's here's probably the easiest way for me to explain it. If this makes sense, and I think to some people it will make sense, but some people it, it'll just go over their heads. I never focus on the problem. Mm-hmm. I'm not wired like that. It's really hard. I'm not an easy person to live with because my wife will be unhappy about something and she'll say, we can't do this because of that. I never see that. I only see the solution. And to make it probably a little bit more clear, it takes the same amount of effort to focus on the solution as it does the problem. But the problem will never solve anything. Does that make sense, Mike? Yeah, yeah, you look at it. Yeah, well... you could you could just say you're positive. I mean that's kind of yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I never even see the negative. I don't even see it. It just it, yeah. anything that happens. Let's say I'm riding tubeless and it's 30 below zero and my tube pops and I have sealant all over. I don't stand back and go, oh man, look at this. I just immediately grab my tube, uh, crack open the side, pull my wheel off, drop the tube in, and you know. Yeah. And put it back together and, and get back riding as soon as I can. I, it's just like a, a well rehearsed motion, like breathing is. I don't even think about that. 
I, I um, yeah, I get that. I mean, I think, yeah, why when when it hits the fan, I think my you know, you take fifteen seconds and scream and yell and do whatever you do, and then it's like, okay, now what? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing was achieved. <laughs> Yeah. But but not, not to say that a few choice words once in a while doesn't feel good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, this year has been my year for tire problems. I've slit so many sidewalls out on rims. I can't even believe it. And so this year when we went to go do um, the Baja Divide for Christmas, I had pulled out every piece of gear. I bought an ATV boot for like uh, four-wheelers and uh, the tools to plug because I've heard about all the cactus. And I also had the bicycling style that are used for plugging small thorns and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I bought everything that I thought that – and I have taped tires back on with Gorilla Tape. I mean, I've done so many different things. And so I tried to be ready for anything that happened to me and me and Tina – on the Baja Divide, this was the first bike ride the entire year we had. No flat tires, nothing, nothing that even came close to it. Well, preparation uh, meets uh, planning equals success. Is that how, isn't that <laughs> the same? <laughs> a little bit of luck too, I think. A lot of luck there, so, I think. So, um, well. so what's what's the Baja Divide? Um, you know, and I'm going to butcher her name. It's Nicholas, I believe, and Leah. It's, is it L-A-E? Lael. Uh, she's from Alaska, and she's an amazing athlete. Um, she's out, I think, breaking another record right now. I was watching her on Facebook. She's working on some, I don't know. I don't even want to go there because I can't be accurate about it. But her and Nick put this route together on the Baja Divide, and it became official in 2016. The yeah. best time to ride it, and if you know Mexico, the the Baja is like the finger that drops down below San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so uh, we have a couple of we have this gal athlete who won actually won the 350 mile event last year, uh, Amy Bream. Um, she's a professor up in Alaska, and I think she's in I think she studies uh, environmental studies. And so she's big into climate change and very knowledgeable about that. But Amy is uh, one of our athletes for the company I own. I own a company called Baryak.com that deals with uh, taking care, builds equipment for people who are doing bikepacking and biking expeditions. And we've literally sell product all over the world. And it's not in big enough quantities uh, to make me uh, <laughs> to get my house paid off, but it's pretty special that and and I talk to almost every single client that we have. I personally talk to them and and make sure that I'm setting them up with what's going to be for their needs. But Amy is one of my athletes who product tests for me. Um, if I can't be there, I like to have people I can trust mm-hmm. to go out and test the product before we put it on the market. And Amy is one of those gals, and she won the 350-mile event and saved her husband last year in the Iditarod. Cody fell through the river uh, coming up uh, the Iron Horse uh, route, mm-hmm. and uh, a few people went through the river there. It was It was very dicey last year, and she kept basically – verbally and physically kicking him in the butt to keep him moving forward so he wouldn't die. Yeah. And 
and uh, Cody will tell you that himself that he's a, he's he's alive today because of his wife and he got he's one of the people that got emergency vac from uh Rhone last year. Um so anyway, um they did this trip last year for Christmas and they're a couple of trusted people and and it, they shared their pictures on Facebook and stuff like that and I told Tina I says we got to go do that. That's great. And it would be the perfect time of year because my wife works with the school system and gets those same holidays off. And so um, immediately I just started planning and getting maps and, and seeing we weren't going to ride the exact route that they did. We we're going to we we're going to look into it and see what it took, you know, how much water. And so we actually each were, were carrying uh, six and a half liters of water per day. And we would use that, and yeah. that's nothing. Oh yeah. Because we just did the Baja Divide Loop. We did the South Cape Loop, which is um, anywhere from 255 to 355 miles, depending on how you ride it. Um, and we tried to stay as true to the course that Leia put together. Um, and uh, we would, we had days that we would use every bit of that water. And the actual route is, I believe, 1,700 miles, and it starts from San Diego. Right from the airport is where the official route starts. And Pete, was it Pete Berenger, just went after her record, and I think he finished a day or two ago, and he might have done it. So Leah has the record, and it's her route, of course, 11 days. Wow. That's a... Yeah, it's a big time wow. Yeah. Because me and Tina did 305 miles, in seven days of riding. <laughs> so, yeah. And there so. is a whole lot of nothing out there. I mean, it's... There's a lot of deserts, a lot of climbing. Um, yeah. uh, we literally, the hurricane came through two months ago and washed out. We ran that route counterclockwise. Everybody else does it clockwise. And every time we bumped into riders from anywhere in the world, which usually we bump into someone, at least someone once a day, uh, they would remind us that we're doing it backwards. <laughs> and I always think that's a state of mind. But <laughs> um, so the, Yeah, but remember, had, the rest of the world does their dates backwards, too. So it's just a U.S. thing. <laughs> I, no, I, it's funny. I realized that when I was in Mexico, you know, because everywhere, everywhere else in the world, it's month day. It's, and we're day uh -huh. month. But my birthday is 2-2. Two, two. I'm good wherever. <laughs> Small victories. <laughs> so, yep. um, so it, it's basically yeah, it's it's the whole length of the peninsula. And there's, I don't you know until I was down there this fall. I mean, I knew you know, I, yeah, it's Baja, whatever. And it was pretty rugged, way more than I thought. I mean, what was your expectation? Was it harder, easier? What you expected? Well, when we went out to do the Copapelli in June, it was our shakedown ride mm -hmm. for this event. And so we knew that we, because the Colorado River is really silty, uh, I knew that I could filter it if I pre-filtered it first if I had to. But we basically went into, kind of went into the Copapelli Trail blind. I had the route, but I just, I like to f solve problems. And so I'll sometimes deliberately just walk into something just so we can, I'll have a, a few facts in the route and, I'll just figure it out as we go. Yeah. And um, we had, uh, 
and we made it. I mean, we had lots of problems, uh, lots of walking. And so a lot of the similar things that we experienced there were really good uh, segues into what we were going to see on the Baja Divide. The thing that made it different um, is you are really, really remote. And if you do bump into somebody and you don't speak Spanish, there's going to be another barrier. Yeah. Um, and the sand. So this, if I have to compare the Baja Divide to anything that I've ever done, I would compare it to the Iditarod with the, the difference being the temperature and the amount of clothing. But my bike was probably almost as heavy because of how much water and food we were carrying. Yeah. Is but it, we literally, we would push sometimes for four miles. Yeah. Um, it's probably a dumb question, but... <laughs> Is it is it as hard being with the heat? I mean, it's kind of a di- it's different, right? But is how does so you know a lot of people are and you deal a lot with adventure athletes. Yeah. I mean, that's your deal, and you you've heard everybody's story about high temperatures and how they deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year, you know, our race we put on race trans South Dakota, and we had we had like three or four days in a row that were. 105, 108, and it was really taking its toll on our athletes. So with that said, I ride in South Dakota in those temperatures, and I we just take precautions. So one of my big precautions uh, are is uh, I wear a buff. Year-round, I wear a buff, and um, I wear a craft cool mesh uh, base layer. And in the summertime, in the 80, anywhere from 68 degrees on up, that is my cycling jersey. It's all I wear. I have like four or five of these things. Yeah. And everybody who's ever ridden with me runs out and buys one after because they, they're so – they, they – Control your your core temperature so nicely, whether it be cold or warm. And so what I'll do is I'll soak the jersey. I'll get it wet. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, we just put out a slideshow yesterday or the day before of the Baja Divide. It's kind of a video slideshow we posted on YouTube and we shared it on Facebook. But you'll see when we're coming into an oasis, we're you know scooping up water and we're soaking down our buffs and our hats. Yeah. And if you've ever been in 100-degree temperatures, and we didn't experience that on the Baja, but we did experience it on the Copapelli um, and in South Dakota, if you put a wet cycling cap on and a wet buff on your neck, it's a totally different world. Yeah. You probably, you know, it feels like your body core dropped down to in the 70s yeah. instead of feeling like your your brain's ready to cook inside its pot. Yeah. Um, have you ever done that before and ex- had this similar experience, Randy? Oh, yeah. I've... I've... I lo- I'm much better in heat, and I and yeah I I mean it, I don't know if you, if there is physiological things or if it's just psychological. But I love the heat, and I I yeah you just stay wet. I was always a yeah. great believer in ice, you know. Fill, fill yeah, I love with, ice in my Camelback. If but in Mexico, you know, because no. you were just there, you no. don't take no ice no. and only bottles of water unless you filter it yourself. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember, so, you know, yeah, filling up a Camelback, you know, with ice. Don't need any water because yep. it's going to melt soon enough. But yep, so. we fill it with ice first in the U.S. and then we top it off with water if there's any room left over. Exactly that. Yeah. So. Um, Let's let's talk about the Trans South Dakota for a while. Otherwise, we'll get back to the old old days again. I know the old coots reminiscing. <laughs> so, um, so Trans South Dakota. Uh, 
It's a race that goes across South Dakota. Hmm? Pretty smart. Yeah. But it's a little different than others because you sort of sort of have support, kind of, a little bit. Yeah, we bill it as a non-supported event because yeah. um, South Dakota is only, what, 200 and the long way. Is it 224 miles across? No, it's like it's, it's, it's over because it's like 412 on the interstate. So okay, in a straight line, it's got to be – I always said 350 from Rapid to Sioux Falls, but I think you know, distances have gotten closer over the years. Yeah. But it's a long ways. I mean, it's it's 350 we, miles in a straight line. So we've taken the 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 400 mile stretch across South Dakota and turned it into 740. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had some help with a friend. So this has been a dream of mine for a long time. Uh, training for the Iditarod, I've ridden most of the roads. The only section I have not ridden in South Dakota is the northeast corner. Yeah. Um, uh, basically, from um, Dewey, the Cheyenne River, um, to the Missouri River, over to uh, North Dakota, Harding, uh, Carter. Uh, do you know that area? Yeah. Montana. Yeah. So just that corner is about the only corner of the state I have not ridden. And I haven't ridden every single road, but I've, if I haven't ridden that road, I've rode the one right next to it. Yeah. Because especially East River, everything runs north, south, east, and west, and yep. you can always turn it into a box, right? Yep. Well, I always would go start and just like right turn, left turn, right turn, left turn at at every intersection, and just go like that for hours and hours and hours. So, because mm-hmm. they're section roads, so for people that don't yes. know, they're literally there's a gravel road at least at minimum every mile. So. Yep. It's, it's yeah. kind of fun for a while, but then after a while, it's like, how do I make this fun? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so that's why Trans-South Dakota came yeah. to be is because we want to bring a lot of different aspects into training because especially East Rivers is more flat. I mean, we have lots of B roads down in our corner down to uh, Iowa, mm-hmm. um, but um, it's relatively flat when compared to the Black Hills region. Yeah. And so... Uh, was my idea to start us in Beulah, Wyoming. Um, I did this with a friend of mine, Greg Gleason, uh, a few years ago, and I talked to him for probably two years to try to get him on board, and he kept telling me, this is a dumb idea. Ain't nobody going to come to ride South Dakota. And so I finally got him uh, excited about it, and he put a large section of the route together. I told him some cities that I wanted to see, in this route, and then he came up, which I wanted to come into um, Chamberlain, and he thought about putting Pier into it, and that was a brilliant idea, I believe. Yeah. Um, and so we've made some changes in the route since then. Um, some of the land that was back then, some of the land that was deemed um, accessible uh, because it was open land and the ranchers didn't care about it, or even some of the B roads um, that uh, – the ranchers have, in some cases, have taken over. And so you can go and you can fight with that rancher and potentially cause problems for your racers in the future, or you can try to work something out, or which we had a a financial arrangement with one rancher. Uh, He's since then changed their mind, so we'll be making another change this year to the route. But, um, you know, some of these guys, West River, um, they've had cattle stole from them, and... um, 
and they don't really know us. And Sioux Falls, we're a little different breed than West River. Um, we're more city-type people, and they're um, more the kind of people that help their neighbor yeah. at the drop of a hat yeah. because they never know when they're they're going to need the help themselves. And they're just great, genuine people, and it takes a bit to earn their trust. And But when you do, it's an amazing experience. And we've had that op- opportunity putting Trans-South Dakota together. We start in Beulah, Wyoming, and uh, Jason Thurman, who uh, is a race director for the Black Hills Expedition, mm-hmm. he helped us uh, navigate the first 30-some miles of our race. And so we basically follow uh, some gravel roads, some private uh, area, and we come into some state land, and we come into Tinton, uh, the old Tinton mine and the old ghost town there, and uh, right after that, they come. They pass through uh, Potato Creek, where the largest chunk of gold was ever found in the state of South Dakota by uh, the alias of Potato Creek Johnny. Yep. Right. Yep. That's the guy. And so we actually go by the remnants of his old shack, which has got a big old huge white pine standing right next to it. But right after the racers go past that, uh, they wind up being diverted onto single track until they drop down onto Iron Creek Reservoir, which is about 20-some miles in the race. And it's pretty welcome. There's a spigot there. There's a little uh, fish shack there, a little campground that serves burgers and chips and and uh, cold cokes and ice cream and all the things you want to have, yep. um, and then they're back out on the route again, and then they have an extensive amount of single track after that yeah. until they drop into Spearfish Canyon. Spearfish Canyon, and they, I mean, it, you, it's interesting because you know, I think people think, well, it's a gravel race across the state, which it is, but it's kind of a mountain bike race the first day. Yeah, <laughs> kind of a technical Anybody mountain who shows bike race. Up, <laughs> Yeah, the you know the cutthroat is probably one of the best bikes for this event, and the cutthroat with a um, low fork would be the perfect bike. Yeah. Um, just because in the beginning there's lots of rocky single track, and I know you know the trails I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You've seen them. You've been out there with us. I really appreciate you being out there uh, doing drone footage and taking breathtaking pictures of my racers. And, you know, there's so much anxiety at the start line, and I don't know anybody who can capture that better than you, Randy. Well, thank you. It's so. it's fun. It, it would, you know, we've talked about it. It'd be, it would really be cool to, like, spend a week or ten days, whatever it takes people to do the whole thing. But it's just like, that's like a week or ten days. It's hard to do, so. Yeah. But, well, but, if you yeah, ever the, want a 4 by 4 or anything to follow our racers for a day or whatever you want, a boat, <laughs> uh, you let me know and I will make it happen. Yeah, <laughs> so. well, we're gonna, you know, we'll get a day in and then, you know, maybe this next year get two days. We'll have to, mm-hmm. let's see. So, well, okay, good question. What's the dates for this year's race? This year we're starting uh, July 21st. Um, we offer so we have three events. We have the 60-mile event. We're calling it the um, Prospectors Race, yeah. uh, kind of named after the theme of Potato Gulch Johnny. And we have a very Potato Gulch Johnny theme to the first part of our race. So uh, I think it was Perry Jewett who kind of excited my passion for that, and and Jason uh, Thurman. Uh, both got me all excited about that. I started doing research and, and reading his history and all the folklore that goes with these his, uh, this historical moments in South Dakota. Mm. And it just, we made, and this is 
this was my wife's idea. The first time we rode the new route was Easter of this 20, uh, of 2017. Mm-hmm. And if you remember what you guys had, eight inches of snow like six days before Easter. I try to I try to uh, erase <laughs> erase. I, I don't like snow. Snow in the spring is okay because it's going away. But yeah, so yeah. so when I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. I'll take your word for it. Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I reduced my wife to tears because uh, we we only had this time window to do it. Yeah. And um, to, and we wanted to get a full understanding of this course and how it fits all together. So we we're for Easter. We rode from Beulah, Wyoming, on the Trans South Dakota first. 200 miles of the course, which brings us to Wall. And so we left one car in Wall, and we drove the van to Beulah and left it in the campground. And so we only had two directions we could go. And if you ever ride with Joe Stiller, there's only one direction you can go. So (laughs) if you break an arm or a leg, there's still only one direction we can go. We've got to go forward. The quick way is forward. Yep. And so we were on the backside just leaving Iron Creek Reservoir and all the trails in the shadowed area were still had deep snow, but the temperatures were warm. Mm. And so once you stepped through the snow, you had a river that you were walking through mm. capped with snow. Yeah. And we just pushed for hours and hours because it was so crusty you couldn't ride through it yeah. and it's all climbing. And so she just she just broke down in tears. She goes, "Can't we camp here?" I says, "No, we can't. We got to keep going." We made it to Black was it Blackstone Lodge just as you're coming into Hill City, and so that's at mile 57, and so that's where we stayed the night. And uh, then we from there we left. We refilled up at uh, was it uh, Lynn's Dakota Mart there in Lead. And uh, hit the Mickelson Trail, and then we never looked back after that because that was just the tough spot. We yeah. had snow in the in the pockets that you know the sun wasn't getting to, and but after we got through that, it was all great. So you know we did the exact same thing this year for Thanksgiving. So we had a friend uh, come up from Chicago. He's actually from the Czech Republic. And he had never really done any bikepacking. He says, I want you guys do fun trips. All of the trips that me and Tina publicly announce, we always welcome people to join us. Yeah. Which is cool. And we ask you to be self-sufficient, but I'm there to give you guidance, answer questions, help you with gear choices, whatever you need. If I can help you, I will. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a private guide because I'm not getting paid. So, But I, I will be there to help you and answer questions and, and make sure – the, the experience is a good one, and everybody who's ever gone with us will tell you that. But yeah. um, so we had the exact same experience. So Thanksgiving, you had snow in those back pockets, yeah. and we got we had one day we just got poured on in rain and in sleet and snow in the morning. And uh, but once we got through the mountains in the Black Hills, you know we get up to Mount Rushmore and a little bit of the. Um, Centennial Trail, and then we drop down on the gravel roads to Hermosa, and, and now it's a totally different race. Yeah. Now we're riding across open prairies uh, and into the Badlands, into Wall. So, yeah. which is the snow is all behind us at that point. Yeah. So the thing I think is interesting, and in, in we're just we're just going to keep rolling. So la- last week's episode was a long one, so we'll see if people like it. But um, <laughs> is um, you make them. 
Well, you don't make them. Yeah, you make them pack raft across the Missouri. Where did yes. where did where did that come from? Um, it just you know I, I it's one of those things that I don't it, it's something I wanted and just made sense to me okay. that because nobody else does this yeah. and if this is going to be an adventure race um, why not have a pack raft and we have a beautiful river the Missouri River. Um, in the area that we come into. So we have the racers come into, after they leave um, Phillip, uh, they're taking back roads and they wind up dropping onto the Bad River Road, which everybody who comes into Fort Pier, they just, they're just, their eyes are sunken in their head and they just say it over and over again, bad, bad, bad <laughs> river road. So there's a lot of climbing and uh, this year the racers dealt with headwinds and again, that's a about a 100-mile section that they have to be self-supported in or self-sufficient in. Um, we did, because of the high temperatures, we did spend a lot of time out on the course last year, um, and nobody knew where we were going to be. Um, every racer has to carry a spot tracker, and so we would just show up randomly in areas where I know because I've, I've ridden this route yeah. at least five times, and I knew where the tough sections were. We'd pop up. They'd come over a hill, and all of a sudden they see me and Tina there smiling, holding the Coke, a cooler full of ice and ice water and and a good ear to listen to how things are going for them. Yeah. But when they come into Fort Pier, um, that checkpoint is now being manned by Copapelli Packrafts, which I'm a rep for. I helped design one of their new boats that is being introduced this year for 2018, and I'll be taking that to Vietnam in, in February to kind of debut it and, and see how it goes on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But that's a different subject. Yeah. But uh, so Copapelli Packraft um, the stages this checkpoint. This checkpoint is open for six days. And when racers come there, it they get everything handed to them. They can, if they want to go to Pier, because there's not a lot in Fort Pier, but if they want to go to Pier, they want to go to Walmart, they want to, there's a bike shop, Paddle and Pedal there in uh, Pier. If they need any services taken care of, uh, there's a laundromat at the, at the beach. Uh, where we stay at the campground, and um, we take them wherever they got to go. And they can stay there as long as the checkpoint's open. Most racers want to get across the river. So usually the first three people, they're in contentions to be the first one because we offer a pretty spectacular trophy at the finish yeah. to the one. And then this year we're giving away two pack rafts and a one-up USA bike rack. So. So it's, a, it's a really cool event, I think. I mean, it's 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 small, but do you think it'll ever be? I don't know. Will it ever be a, a bucket list race? You think? I hope so. So I'm getting more calls. We already have 18 that have already paid and signed up. Yeah. And like I say, this year we have three events. We have the 60 miler. We have the 340 miler, which we have three people on that. And so last year we offered the 340 and people would call about it, yeah. but then nobody would, they would sign up for the, the bigger race. Yeah. When it come down to dropping their, uh, dropping down their registration, they would sign up for the 740. Yeah. But you followed the race last year. We only had four people finish yeah, the race. But we, we had quite a few people make it across the river. And so 340 is really not a bad plan, especially for your first year. And if you haven't done it, we wanted to build a race that is kind of a training ground with a spin in it for the Tour Divide. 
So the Tour Divide, you'll have sections of 200 miles where you'll be carrying, having to be self-sufficient on gravel roads. Um, our sections are only 100. So it's it's like a mini version that someone can do with a week's vacation if they want to do the whole uh, shoot and match. Yeah. No, I think that's a, yeah, a, a stepping stone, building block. Yeah. 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 You, you might do this. You might say, I ain't no way I'm going to do 2,700 miles on the Tour Divide event. Yeah. Or you might say, hey, you know, this went really well. You know, David did really well in this. Um, David Crikey from uh, Sheldon, Iowa, he won it this year. Mm-hmm. It was really uh, touch and go between him and Dan Coogan out of Colorado. And we never knew for sure who was going to, you know. It, the, the things, the favors changed so much in, a, in the dynamics of this race. Dan Coogan was ahead by a day in wall. But he destroyed himself getting there, and so he was smart. He took a day off to recover, and then three guys caught him. And so now those three guys who caught him were all excited, and they're thinking, hey, I got a chance to win this. And so when you came to an event and you trained to finish, and now you're going to push yourself into that um, that nosebleed section, um, that was what kind of caught some people. And they were all very honest, and that's the only reason I'm saying this, is they're all very honest and say, you know, I got, you know, I lost control of my race. Yeah. You know, I lost sight of what my plan was. And that's a good li- life lesson, actually. Yeah. Um, but it's, and so, yeah, it's hard not to do when you're like, well, uh, there's nobody in front of me. <laughs> yeah, I, I just caught this guy. Yeah. He's the fastest guy, you know. And so, yeah, and I've been there. I've put myself in that situation so yeah it's a pretty neat race it's kind of funny uh, we ended north sioux city which is it's a tough part of um of sioux city it's uh it's you know got a lot of casinos and and stuff like that so i think it's kind of a fun setting to finish because they see so much um so much diversity in the whole route and then and once they get to once they get to um philip um or Westington Springs. So it's really hard. The race is hard until you get to Westington Springs. And then you got, what, 20 miles, 40 miles to Letcher. And then you got another 20 miles to Mitchell. And then from that point, there's like towns yeah. every 20 miles, 15 to 20 miles. And so you got lots of resupply places. And we allow people to ship their gear out. So if you decide, hey, I don't need to carry this anymore, you can put it in the mail and mail it back to yourself and you can mail stuff to yourself we had some races the first year mail themselves uh food supplies to certain towns the couple the husband and wife couple from colorado uh uh, patsy and kenny smith yeah so so she's my only woman finisher she finished she's 61 years old they started the race you met them yep um they they started the race day was their what 39th wedding anniversary yeah, I remember that, and I also remember they're trying to figure out how to work the GPS. Yes, on the day of the race, <laughs> they're at the start line. Hey, Joe, can you help me figure this out? This darn GPS won't be turned on. I'm going. Oh, this is not going to be good because <laughs> you and, have to have a GPS for this race. <laughs> and they were that first. Well, they didn't get to Hill City till like the second day. Yeah, I mean they went. And we're, We're telling people that too, Randy, is that, you know, don't feel bad. You know, make it to Hill City. If you want to push a hard day, make it to Hill City. 
I mean, this is a long race. Don't yeah. destroy yourself on the first day. If you make it to Hill City, be good with that. Yeah. Um, if you want to ride all night, then push to um, – uh, I mean, if you want to ride all night, then push to Hill City. Otherwise, stay in lead. Yeah. Or what me, we did for uh, Thanksgiving this year is w- all we did is we rode the Spearfish Canyon Lodged and had dinner at 6 o'clock that night. We were so thankful that um, they were still serving. And then we wound up, because during the wintertime, their rates are really, really affordable. It's a beautiful Steve. place. Yeah. Um, we stayed at the lodge there that night. So, yep. You know... It's supposed to be fun. Yes. And I think that's, you know, that some people's fun is a little harder, different, stranger than others, but make it fun. I think that's kind of an evolution because I remember my ideas of what fun was and what my ideas of fun is are, are now, excuse me, um, are totally different than they were just three years ago. Yeah, I believe that. That's it. I'm, I used to think it was fun to go bike racing. Yeah, and I'm like, it's not there yet. I, I, I keep thinking maybe eventually there'll be something that'll like, yeah, I might want to do this one and not just shoot it. But shooting is so much fun for me right now, so yeah, I'm cool with it. And you, the memories that you're preserving for people. Uh, I think one of my wake up calls was the first year I did the Iditarod. Um, I made it to McGrath, 350 miles, and just over two days and remember i'm going through a mountainous terrain Mm -hmm. uh really really rugged conditions so if you ask me what i remember from that year if i didn't take a photograph of it randy i don't remember nothing i don't remember day turning into night i don't remember i would just be riding and i'd say it's daylight how'd that happen yeah, exactly. And I was, and that's what I brought back with this. And I go, you know, I spent, you know, to do the Iditarod with your gear and everything, it's, you got to have $10,000 invested. Yeah. yeah. And to invest that kind of money and come back from it and not remember anything, that's, to that me, would, it was a bad decision. That would have, yeah, that would, that would suck. So, so um, <laughs> all right, we're going to wrap this up a little quick. So I want to know, so so you've got a little trip to Vietnam planned. What else you got going this year? Um, well, we got Arrowhead coming up in three weeks, okay. which I really feel bad for because I didn't have not spent one day training uh, <laughs> for Arrowhead yet this year. So uh, um, we'll see how that's going to turn out for me. I'm doing it unsupported. Um, this could really be a bad deal, but... Um, Right now, I'm just focusing. There's a lot of logistics and things I have to try to figure out to uh, get ready for Vietnam uh, because Chinese New Year is coming up. And for people who don't understand what that means, this is the largest Asian migration in the world. And pretty much everything shuts down for like a month. And so I need to be there and on the ground. And the reason the timeline is so tight is because I'm trying to miss the, the Thai food season. Yeah. So you, in the rainy season. And so I'm trying to get in and out of there within a three- or four-week time frame. And, um, right. you know, and th- that's what I'm worried about. I'm not worried about all the the bombs that are still left coming up from the ground and, and some of the things that we're going to try to achieve. So. Yeah. Cool. so anything else for the rest of the year or just uh, 
Well, we're going back to Mexico for Christmas. Okay. Um, I want to go. We want to take a film crew out and do the Copapelli Trail. And actually, there's been some kind of this is inside scoop. Um, Copapelli would like to put together a race on the Copapelli Trail, an adventure race, kind of like a small version of Trans South Dakota mm. with pack rafting involved. Cool. And so me and Kelly last year sat down and we put a pencil to it, and we know where the water sections are and stuff like that, but we never send anybody out to do anything unless we have physically done it and made lots of trail notes. Yeah. And so I would like to try to eke out and do the Copapelli Trail. You know, the window is really tight because by the time you – early June, like when we left last year, the temperatures are in the hundreds. Yeah. And so not on my – at that – this year, if we do the same thing, we won't only be – doing doing that but we'll be carrying eight pounds worth of boat and and gear extra gear besides what we had last year so um we'd like to go around lake superior again and i don't know just kind of we have some things but i don't like to announce anything until i have uh have all the bugs figured out so usually if i make an announcement that we're going to go do something um because people always say you can't do that because of this i've already got those things figured out Um, and so I still have some things to work out before I make any more public okay. announcements. All right. So, um, but if people yeah. want to follow along, anytime yeah. we do a public ride or an event that we're inviting people to, if they go to uh, Baryak's Facebook page, we have mm-hmm. a calendar of events on there. Mm-hmm. And I think we have two or three rides already slated that are open for people to come join us with. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the funnest one, and this is great for, like, beginning bike packers, um, because you got full access to us, and it involves pack rafting, and that's uh, September 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Yeah, that's good. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, he, he sent me all the links, and I'll put them in the show notes. And everybody that's spent this much time listening to the old-timers will be able to see what's going on. I love you, Randy. <laughs> Thank you so much. So yes. So, all right. Well, that's cool. So, um, you know what? I'm gonna go for a hike. <laughs> all right. I got a dog wants to go out because it's like really nice yeah. here. It's like almost 40 degrees. I've been watching the temperatures up there. Yeah. So, so cool. This was a fun chat. Thank so, you very much, Randy. So, and uh, I don't know. We'll see you. You'll probably be out here sometime. No offense, but I don't go back to Sioux Falls. <laughs> Well, I like your neighborhood better than mine, so I totally get that. Yeah. When, when so, we moved, people said, oh, are you going to come visit? And I was like, no. And then, honestly, it was May of 16 before I got back there, and that's just because I would, had been shooting in Minnesota, and it was blizzarding here, so I stopped and saw Dave and Mary. Stayed at their house instead on the side of the road. Yeah. That would be beautiful. I, you know, Tina is an interpreter, and she can go almost anywhere and get a job, and yeah. I can be Baryak any place. Yeah. And so I wouldn't mind. I would love to move out into your neck of the woods and uh, and have – because I've ridden all the roads here, yeah. and I need more diversity. And even though – even if I had the same roads there, because of the climate changes that you guys have in diversity um, – it you changes. know what I'm saying. Yeah. It's yeah. the hard part always was it's it's not even so much living there and coming out of here and having fun, it's that driving home. Driving yeah. back to Sioux Falls. It's like ah oh, six hours. Yeah. Yes. Let's get out there. So 
All right. Well, come visit us. You can always crash here if you want. All right. So, all right. Well, it was a good chat. Thanks. Thank you so much, Randy, for this opportunity. I appreciate it. All right. Um, and my home is your home, too. All right. Happy, uh, happy uh, Tet Offensive New Year. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Is it is it would is it would be Happy Tet right? Isn't that or to be because that's the new year? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tina's the interpreter. She should know. <laughs> Ask yeah, her. She should. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye. <laughs> bye, bye, Randy. Thanks again. You're welcome. Bye, bye. Yeah, I 
six feet on the ring. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh-huh. 